These two chapters will complete what's called the holiness code in the book of Leviticus. That's the uh, traditional name for this section, and it covers um, 17 through 20. And it's in parallel structurally with the cleanliness laws of chapters 11 through 15. So we've discussed a chiastic structure. So that would be an X-shaped structure of the book. And in the center, we have the Day of Atonement. So we're on our way out of the center of the book. We've only got a few more weeks left in Leviticus. The corresponding section had to do with ceremonial cleanness. And this section here, and we're doing the second part tonight, discusses moral purity. So we've been looking at that verse from the Psalms, clean hands and a pure heart. And once again tonight, the structure, actually very much like it was on Sunday as well, is a lot of disparate commandments, a lot of one or two verse instructions and laws, and that's, uh, that's how this book was used. We've got to remember, this was not just religious literature. This was their actual law book. This was actually what the lawyers looked at and the judges looked at when they were making civil and criminal decisions. So for that reason, if it is not as grabby as, say, the Gospels or the book of Daniel or something, you've got to remember the function of this book and also that it is God's word and it's inspired and inerrant and all the rest. So there will be a lot of different points tonight, but they all revolve around two central themes that we're going to draw out. The first one is holiness, which we hit some last time. The people are to be holy just as the Lord himself is holy. And the second theme is love. In these chapters here, Leviticus 19, 18, we're going to find that famous command to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus did not come up with that, of course. He was answering a question about the greatest commandment in the law, and he said that that was the second greatest. So both of those themes, holiness and love, in the exact wording we find in these chapters, are repeated in the New Testament. And so they form the foundation of our conduct as Christians. So this makes it an important section. A lot of times we know the New Testament teaching, which is good, I'm not on you for that. But we need to also recognize that a lot of these phrases and words and turns of phrase that the apostles and Jesus used are callbacks to the Old Testament. And you are expected, it's assumed when they use phrases like this, that you're familiar with the context. And so that's why we study books like Leviticus in the detail that we've been going through. So we'll begin with the first eight verses of Leviticus. And uh, we'll take it one section at a time from there. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. You might want to underline that phrase, I am the Lord your God, in this chapter. It comes up many times. When you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten the same day you, shall, you offer it or on the day after, and anything left over until the third day shall be burned up with fire. If it is eaten at all on the third day, it is tainted. It will not be accepted. And everyone who eats it shall bear his iniquity because he has profaned what is holy to the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from his people. So in chapter 17 and 18, we had instructions related to sacrifices and related to blood, that they were not to eat the blood. And then about sexual immorality, specifically related to incest, but broader than that as well. And we continue with that same section in chapter 19. And here the Lord commands the people, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. That statement or some variation of it, be holy as I am holy, is made five times in the book of Leviticus. It's made in chapter 11, verse 44, chapter 11, verse 45, chapter 19, verse 2, which is right here, chapter 20, verse 7, and chapter 20, verse 26, which we will see in a moment. Be holy, for I am holy. It is also going to be said in chapter 21, verses 6 through 8, in relation to the priests. So not to the whole congregation, but say, the priests will be holy because I am holy. And the final reference in the law is in Numbers chapter 15, verse 40, when God will say it to the people again. And this phrase, be holy for I am holy, is calling back to Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, when God first established the covenant with the people. He said in Exodus 19, 6, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests 
and a holy nation. So when God invited them into the covenant, he began by saying, you're going to be my priest and you're going to be holy. And so therefore, several times throughout this book of the law, the Lord reminds them to be holy as he is holy. The New Testament will pick up this verse as well. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 is going to quote Exodus 19 that we just read, kingdom of priests and a holy nation, and apply it to the church, specifically to Jewish Christians, but it applies to us as well. Ephesians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 5 both say that God saved us for the purpose of being holy, just as the children of Israel were saved from Egypt to be holy. Jesus would actually up the ante a little bit and, and, and define what this means. In Matthew 5, 48, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, you must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And you can hear how he's using that, that familiar refrain and phraseology, but intensifying it. That's what Jesus did in all of his commandments, right? You've heard it said, but I say to you. Although holiness and perfection very much go together. I'll quote from 1 Peter chapter 1 because he, he makes the clearest reference to this passage. Verses 15 and 16, he writes, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And he says, since it is written, he's quoting from Leviticus. So Peter grounds one of the most important ethical commands of the New Testament in one of the refrains of the book of Leviticus. So it's important that we know the book of Leviticus. This idea is not restricted to the law, but it remains in effect for all of God's people for all time. And that's one of the points of interpretation of this book of the law is which ones still apply to us. Well, if you see it repeated in the New Testament so plainly, then it's pretty obvious that that one applies to us. Now, we talked about this last time, but I'll remind you to be holy which is a word that we use a lot. The fundamental meaning of that word means to be separate. We talked about how the loaves of bread in the tabernacle were holy. Well, what is holy about them? That they are separated from other kinds of bread. The people were holy because they were separated from the people. God is holy because in his divine otherness, he is separate from us as people. He's different. He's not like us. And that is the word holy. But especially in the Bible, it refers to moral separation or righteous separation. That God is not like us and that makes him holy. But the kind of dissimilarity between us and God that the Bible emphasizes is his moral separation. That God doesn't lie. That God doesn't sin. That God is not tempted. So there's absolutely a moral quality to it. And it also refers to our devotion to the Lord, that we are holy because we have committed ourselves to the Lord. We have taken ourselves out, or rather, the Lord himself has taken us out from among other people for his sake and for his purposes. So we are holy in that way. The Holy Spirit goes through our lives, as we read in Romans, and sanctifies us, which means to holify us to make us holy, to act out in reality what the Lord has declared to be true in his sovereign will. So separation, especially moral and worshipful separation, is one of the defining characteristics of God's people. And there are many ways to live out this mandate, and we talk about them a lot in the church. But the principle itself needs to be remembered, and we hit this in great detail last time, so we'll go ahead and move on. In this section here, these eight verses, God gives four different instructions of how to maintain this holiness. So he says, be holy for I am holy. And we say, okay, what does that mean? And he gives them immediately four commandments that fall under this category. And it's not just these four, it's all of this together. But these are closely tied to that statement contextually. First of all, he says to revere their parents. This is the Hebrew word yare which means to fear. So quite literally there, he says, you are to fear your parents. And that's significant because the, the person you're supposed to fear, according to the Old Testament, is the Lord himself. So by calling up children to fear their parents, the, God is very much placing parents with divine authority over their children. Now that's a heavy thing for a child to remember that God is going to treat your obedience to your parents similar to how he treats your obedience or disobedience to him. But it's also a heavy thing for us as parents 
knowing that God has placed that kind of responsibility upon us and mandated that kind of obedience from our children, then that, that sobers us up and it calls us to account, doesn't it? Second, he says to keep the Sabbaths, which was and still is the primary distinctive marker of the Jews and Israel as a whole. They take the seventh day off. They also, in the Bible, were to take the seventh year off, although it doesn't seem like they ever did that in the Old Testament, and God would judge them for it. Number three, they were to abstain from idolatry of every kind, serving only the Lord. And we talked about that last time as well. Can you see that a lot of these initial ones in this chapter are related to the Ten Commandments? Honor your father and mother, keep the Sabbath, serve only the Lord, don't make any graven images. And fourth, this is an interesting one, they were to eat their peace offering on the same day it was offered or the day after, but not on the third day. So can you see how day one is inclusive and how they reckon time, which is why Jesus rose on the third day, even though we and how we reckon time might say two days later. It's like killed on day one and the tomb day two, risen on day three. Just a little note there. Now the peace offering, if you remember from chapters one through seven, we discussed all the different kinds of offerings. The peace offering was unique because it was voluntary. It wasn't something that you brought because you had sinned. It's something you brought as an act of worship to the Lord. And when you did that, you would then partake of the meat. You actually would eat part of it. And it was a celebratory thing. And it was a way of having communion with God. And what the Lord tells them here, when you offer a peace offering, don't delay in that communion with me. Eat it the same day, or if you must, if something happens, if maybe there's just a lot of food, I don't know. Eat it the day after, but not after that. What's the point here? Don't treat my holy offerings as something to be consumed at your own leisure. I'll get to it when I get to it. The Lord says, no, no, no. And there's a whole lesson to be learned there about not being too casual and selfish in your worship of the Lord. You know, Calvary Chapel as a movement is very casual in our approach to ministry, but that is not equated to having a casual heart when it comes to the Lord. So all of these laws here are Godward. You can see that. As holy people, these are the kinds of things they were to do, to distinguish themselves from the nations around them. And we are to do the similar thing as holy people in Christ. Let's keep going now. Chapter 19 still, verses 9 and, and 10. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Now, this section here, these are more miscellaneous laws. A lot of these are civil laws. Some of them are going to be criminal, and they're not codes that we follow to this day, but there's still a lot of application uh, for the dispensation in which we live that we can gather. So 9 and 10, he tells them not to harvest all of the crops. When you're reaping your field, leave the edges unharvested, and the traditions would argue and go back and forth over how much to leave. And also, not to pick up the gleanings. So if you're pulling a bunch of grapes off of the vine and some of them fall to the ground, leave them. If you've got a wagon full of grain or corn or whatever it is and some of it falls off the back, leave it. Don't go back and glean, which is to come back and get everything that was left over. And the reason for that was this was a way to provide for the poor. What we're going to see later on is that God is going to distribute land to all the people. But there were certain cases, especially in matters of debt or financial hardship, where you would have to sell your ancestral land for up to seven or even up to 49 years in certain cases. You would get it back in the year of Jubilee. But it was very possible that even in this ideal situation, there are people that cannot afford their own food or cannot grow their own food. He also mentions sojourners. That is a foreigner. That's somebody that doesn't own land in Israel, but lives there. Maybe they were a refugee from another country. Maybe they heard about how great it was in Israel and they came through. Who knows? But this was for the poor and for the sojourner, that all the fields would not be completely picked clean so that they could go back, they could pick up the gleanings, and they could pick what had not been harvested at the edges. If you look in the book of Ruth, this is what Ruth does when she comes back from Moab with Naomi. She goes to the field of Boaz and she begins to harvest the barley. And Boaz thinks she's cute. And so he tells the fellas, hey, as you're going by, drop extra stuff for her. 
And there's a part where they say, hey, there's this Moabite woman and she's harvesting out of the part we haven't got to yet. And the reason that upset them was because you're supposed to wait until we've gotten the bulk of it, then you can come through. But again, Boaz thought she was cute and said it was fine. And it's a wonderful romantic story. You can go read it. But uh, you might want to put the book of Ruth in the, in the margins there, or maybe flip over to Ruth and write Leviticus 19, 9 and 10 to remind you of where this comes from. What we learn from this, it's absolutely appropriate for a society to make laws that help the poor and help the sojourner. This is important for us to remember that in the one time God set up a civil society, he made abundant provision for people that were fallen on hard times. And I know we have lots of debates over, is this a good law or a bad law? Is this enabling people to abuse it or not? We can have those debates, but the principle of taking care of those that are having a hard time is totally biblical. And we ought to have social safety nets, even for, it says, the sojourner, which means somebody who's not a citizen, maybe even somebody who is here illegally. That's what a sojourner was in this context. I think you also could apply this law to discourage monopolies in certain businesses. Talk about reaping to the edges of the field. His whole point is for those that are coming behind you that don't have as much as you, give them a chance. I think we've all seen in many different cases, although we have antitrust laws now and things like that, that when one company just gets all of the, the market share in one domain, they then can set the rules. And then now they have authority in Washington, which it was never part of the, the plan, right? That they have all the money and they have all the, the you know, have you ever noticed that like when a, a big corporation for some reason is putting a lot of support behind a law that's supposed to restrict major corporations? It's like, wait a minute, that's kind of suspicious, isn't it? Well, really what a lot of that is, is a big corporation knows that they can absorb the blow that comes from these new regulations. We can afford to pay our employees more. We can afford to have healthcare plans, et cetera. And they know that that'll be cost them more, but the little guy that they're competing with isn't going to be able to do that. So that allows them to do more. So this is the kind of thing that we, we look for is that there is room for everybody, even the little guy, to do what he needs to do. Verses 11 and 12. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. These instructions are all very similar to each other about honesty and deception uh, theft is in here, dishonest business practices is in here, lying, false testimony in court. He calls them profane things, that you profane the name of the Lord. And uh, what he means by that is if you're in court, for example, and you swear as the Lord lives, you know, you lay your hand on the Bible, solemnly swear to tell the truth, whole truth, not but the truth, so help me God. And then you lie, you've profaned the name of the Lord. So honesty and honor ought to trump Profit for God's people. Can you say that what you're doing is honorable? Well, it's legal. Okay, that's fine. Forget that. What does God think? Can you look God in the face and say, I did the right thing? Verse 13, you shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. So this is related to, but specifically to wages. That if you had a day laborer, we see this a lot in the New Testament, they'd get a denarius for working one day, right? He says, don't say, I'll pay you tomorrow. Because, and I mean, I've been in this situation most of my life. You're dependent on that check coming in on time. Anybody else been there? Still there all the time? If it's a day late, if you've got one of those things where it's going to draft two days late for some reason, it's like we're not spending a nickel <laughs> because we need this. And he's telling those of you that, that have somebody's livelihood in your hand, you've got to be consistent and you've got to be faithful and you should never hold it over somebody. I'd say the same thing if you're a manager somewhere. Don't hold somebody's hours over their head to get what you want out of them. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 20, leaders in the Gentile world, lord it over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever wants to be great among you ought to be the servant of all. Verse 14, you shall not curse the deaf, idea being they can't hear you, but it doesn't matter, don't curse them anyway, or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God, I am the Lord. So this relates to those who are disabled. Obviously, those would be easily taken advantage of, especially in a society like this. 
where we now have so many modern conveniences that we can alleviate a lot of that suffering. But the principle remains the same. Don't take advantage of somebody who it's easy to take advantage of. And notice the contrast there is to fear the Lord. Yeah, they can't do anything to you, but God sees that and he hates that kind of thing. So somebody who is blind, somebody who is crippled, somebody who even is mentally retarded, to take advantage of somebody like that, you're going to reckon with God and you ought to be afraid is what Moses is saying here. Don't do that. Don't take advantage of somebody. Don't treat them as pushovers, but you go out of your way to help them. And I think, to be fair, we do a lot of calling, uh, calling people out. I think our society is, is admirable in the way that we go out of our way to help those who are disabled. So we ought to commend ourselves when we can. Verses 15 and 16. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. So he says, you shall not in these. So you think, wait a minute, isn't this just for judges? Well, consider the context here. In village life, you're not usually going to go to a formal court setting, but it's going to be handled by village elders. It's going to be handled by your friends and the people who know you. This is also how the church is supposed to run, Paul explains in 1 Corinthians, that we're supposed to handle a lot of things in-house. And he tells us how to do this. Neither poverty nor power is to factor in your decision. Now, we get the second one, right? Don't let the rich guy get an extra break in court. Like, we all get that. But the same is true for the poor man. He says it, does, that, that doesn't factor into your decision. If the poor man cheated the rich man, then you don't say, well, he's poor, so he can't afford the, the penalty like the rich man can. Or ah, the rich guy, he can, he can stand to lose a few bucks. God goes, no, that's injustice. Fairness, perfect fairness. That's what justice is. I might add any other kind of category. Class should not fall into that category. Well, he's, he's rich and he's poor. Oh, he's middle class and she's upper class or whatever. You could throw sex into that, male or female. Well, women have been downtrodden, therefore they get special treatment. No. Nor, well, men should, God says men are leaders so they can get away with stuff. No. Same thing applies to race. Same things apply to citizenship. Any category you want. God goes, treat people like people, especially when you're in court. And he also says not to be a slanderer, and that's, that's related to this. He said, you are not supposed to be the one going around causing trouble and trying to get people in trouble with the law. Like, you know that somebody's done something, so you go around planting seeds so that that guy will get what's coming to him. That, that's really not okay. We've got a lot of that going on. Like Somebody can't just deal with something frankly. We're going to talk about this, but instead of going to a person or going to that person's authority or anything, we're just going to post it online for the whole world to see. And now everything is just blown up for that person's life. And, and you know in many cases, it doesn't matter if it's true or not, because once it's out there, it's out there. Well, God goes, don't do that. And don't stand up against the life of your neighbor. Don't have it out for somebody. I'm going to get him one day. I'm going to watch him. And when that, that day comes, when he messes up, I'm going to take his job. Because one of these days he's going to mess up and I'm lying in wait. He goes, no, 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 don't do that. We're, to look to, we're supposed to look to cover sins, not to look out and try to take scalps from people. Proverbs 10, 12 says that love conceals a fault. So that doesn't seem right. Yeah, but don't you want people to do that for you? Right? Don't you want somebody, when you mess up, just to kind of be like, look, man, let's work it out together. We don't need to make a big thing out of it. Verses 17 and 18. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. But here it is. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So this is about hate. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. Don't you know that God doesn't just care about how it plays out in your life or in society? He cares about what's going on in your heart. Don't hate your brother. But you shall reason frankly with your neighbor. Why does he contrast hate with dealing frankly? Because he says, if you've got a problem with somebody, go talk to him about it. Don't sit there and brood over it and get angry over it. And meanwhile, he's over there blissfully unaware doing the exact same thing because he doesn't know you had a problem with it. And so you say, oh, he doesn't, doesn't he know what he's doing? No, because you didn't tell him. 
Reason frankly. That is, rebuke and be honest with somebody when you've got a problem. Don't get your friends and air your laundry. Do you know what she did? I can't believe she did this to me. Don't gather allies who weren't there and don't know anything about it and they only know your side of the story. Especially fellas, be, be men. And if you've got a problem with somebody, go talk to his face. And if you don't want to, then you need to get over it. Supplies in marriage too, by the way. Don't sit there and hold on to stuff. Doesn't he know what he's doing? Maybe not. <laughs> I'm, I'm serious. Hasn't that happened to you? Where somebody, all the, you feel like they're getting mad at you out of the blue. And it turns out that there's been a whole long line of things that you didn't know you were doing anything wrong. You weren't trying to hurt them, but it was driving that person crazy. And then they waited to talk to you about it when they were so angry they couldn't keep it in anymore. Don't do that. Deal with it when it's small and it'll be much easier. Christians ought to be characterized by forthright dealings. That's why Jesus told us, don't even take an oath. Don't even use intensifiers when you speak to each other. Just say yes or no and live your life in such a way that your word counts with people. And also, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians again, he says, you really need to go to court for this? You can't just handle this among yourselves? We should be able to deal with each other and keep going. Now, the second half of verse 18, we'll slow down and take a little time here. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is a famous command that just about everybody knows, even if they don't know where it came from. Matthew 22, verses 35 through 40. This is related to Jesus. One of them, a lawyer so an expert in the law of Moses, asked Jesus a question to test him. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So when they asked Jesus, if you could boil down the Old Testament to one thing, what would it be? And he quotes from Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, love the Lord your God with all your heart. But he very quickly hastens to add, and secondly, Leviticus 19, 18, love your neighbor as yourself. Again, it's kind of important that we know Leviticus, isn't it? He says, I can summarize all of the Old Testament in love God and love people. Likewise, Paul said in Romans chapter 13 and Galatians chapter 5 that the whole law was fulfilled by this commandment, which is to love. And in, at least in Galatians context, what Paul is saying is, what do you need the law for? If you love each other, then you've accomplished everything that the law is trying to get you to do in the first place. James chapter 2 verse 8 calls it the royal law to love your neighbor as yourself. Isn't that cool? That's a kingly thing to love your neighbor as yourself. Then in Luke chapter 10, as you know, Jesus clarified what this means. Because this is what theologians do, you know. They say, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, who your neighbor is is very important here. Now, obviously, Gentiles aren't neighbors, and sinners aren't neighbors, and Sadducees aren't neighbors, and people you don't like. So, you know, you, gotta, you love them and you'll be okay. Jesus comes in and tells this really offensive story. And he says, the priest ignored the man who had been beaten the Levite ignored the man who had been beaten. And then the Samaritan, the hated Samaritan, shall we say the communist, showed up and showed pity. The radical Muslim showed up and showed pity. Pick whatever people you have a problem with. The Russian, I don't know, whatever your thing is. Showed up and, and he took the man and, and took care of him and loved on him. And this atheist, for example, said, hey, I'll, any, any of expenses I'll take care of. And Jesus says, so who's the neighbor here? Do you see how he flipped it? He flipped it from who's my neighbor that I need to apply this to, to say, you be the neighbor to everybody. You're a walking neighbor, right? You're, you are the one that wherever you are, that's your neighborhood. And those are the people that you need to love. He clarified that this is a broad commandment, not a narrow one. God, sometimes you've got to get this when you're trying to interpret scripture. When you, God sometimes isn't trying to narrow things by the words he uses. Like, well, my neighbors, I've only got a few neighbors. God goes, that's not, okay, that's not what I was trying to say. I'm saying love everybody. We talked about this on Sunday at length, didn't we, in Romans chapter 12? Haven't you learned the lesson? All of our faith is based on the commandment to love others. What does it mean to be a Christian? We love God and we love 
people. If your Christian ethic cannot reasonably be described by love that is patient and kind and everything else 1 Corinthians 13 tells us, then you are off the foundation. And there's so many people that they, they don't want to show love. So we redefine love. We redefine neighbor. We redefine all this stuff so that we don't have to act how we know we should. Especially in days like this when everybody's angry. And there's not one color that people vote for, red or blue or green or whatever, that has a monopoly on being angry right now. Everybody's angry. We have enemies. And I've seen way too many people saying alarming things like, well, Christianity doesn't mean you just let people do whatever you want. And it's time for us to stand up and fight. And God will forgive us if we go too far. It's like, dude, love. L-O-V-E, your neighbor as yourself. Well, that doesn't mean I'm supposed to let myself get trampled. Really? Because your Savior let himself get trampled. He let himself get mocked and flogged, and falsely accused, and a crown of thorns, and nailed to a tree, and bled out. That's your example. In light of all the love that you have received, how can you give any less to somebody else? Do you expect God to show abundant, overwhelming, reckless love to you, and you won't do the same thing to other people? Well, you know, you gotta be, you got to be careful and you got to not let... Okay, you know what? We all get that one. The one we have trouble with is loving everybody well. 1 John 4, 19 says we love because he first loved us. How can you love that person? How could God love me? My entire eternity is based on God loving me when I don't deserve it. Therefore, all these other people that don't deserve my love, they're going to get my love. And not some weird, passive-aggressive, sarcastic kind of love. The real thing. The real thing. Love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 19. You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed. Nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. So I hope you can see how this section is flowing here. There's a lot of repetition of keep my statutes when he inaugurates a new section. And he says, I am the Lord, an awful lot to round off a segment. Now, verse 19 is kind of weird. Uh, it's, it's about mixing cattle, about mixing the seeds that you sow, and mixing different kinds of cloth, all of which are, are bad ideas in the first place because they're not going to be as effective. Uh, but this law is there as a testament to holiness and separation. That God tells the children of Israel, you are going to make a big deal of keeping like with like because I am separating you from the world and you need to maintain that separation. Verse 20, if a man lies sexually with a woman who is a slave assigned to another man and not yet ransomed or given her freedom, a distinction shall be made. They shall not be put to death because she was not free, but he shall bring his compensation to the Lord to the entrance of the tent of meeting, a ram for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering before the Lord for his sin that he has committed. And he shall be forgiven for the sin that he has committed. All right. So right away, we got a, a real charged section here. So we got to remember some of the things that we learned in Exodus when we talk about this. This is about a man who has sex with a slave and especially a slave who says is assigned to a man. We discussed this in the book of Exodus. That very often, a woman would be purchased, and this is, this is not like the slave markets that were in our country long ago, but this was like a bride price. That she would be brought into the house, and in many cases would grow up with the family, and when they came of age, she would be married to the man that she had been uh, betrothed to. So this is not, a, not just a fling of passion. This is adultery, functional adultery, even though they were not married. And you'll see how he talks about her being ransomed or being set free. Most of the time, in fact, almost every time in the book of the law, when we're talking about slaves, we're talking about what we, what we called back in the day indentured servitude. Most of the time, this was for the payment of a debt, if you couldn't, like we talked about the land that could be sold. You also could sell yourself into slavery for no more than seven years, and then you would have to be set free. You could also do this for your children, where they would go work for somebody for a set amount of time, no more than six or seven years. And also for uh, ways like this. And this is, was actually rather common in how a lot of people came to the new world a long time ago. So uh, this is what we're discussing here. And uh, he talks about a man who has sex with one of these women. Now, this is not necessarily uh, 
what we would call rape, um, because this is kind of what it sounds like when he's saying that, or, or you know, not maybe not coercion in physical force, but in she doesn't really have the right to say no because of the status difference. That could be what's going on. It could be quite simply a romantic thing, or it, it could be something a little more insidious than that. Now, why does God give an exception to the laws here? Because the original law says that if she was betrothed, which she was, and she committed adultery, both of them would be put to death. So the man and the woman would be put to death. They didn't just put it on one person. And if, in normal cases, they had slept together before they were married, they would have had to get married. That was the law from Exodus chapter 22, verse 16. So why is there an exception here? Well, the answer is because of the status of slavery or servitude here. And uh, he says in the Hebrew that there must be a bikoret, which is translated a number of different ways. Some of the older ones have, there must be a punishment. Uh, and so they translate that they would have had to be flogged. It's much more likely that what he's talking about here is there's compensation that has to be made. Uh, so the word is not scourging. The word is bikoret. It can mean distinction, compensation, punishment. So that's why the ESV has it that way. Why would she not be executed? Because the man who had purchased her had invested many years of his time and an awful lot of his money, which then would have been lost at this point. Also, because she, in many cases, especially in this situation, would have been unable to reasonably decline. And that unfortunately happened in our country quite a bit. So the Lord is not going to punish her if that is the case. Now, the man is not going to be executed because the way the Bible handles justice, it would not be right for one of them to be executed and one of them not to be on something that was always mutual punishment assigned. But instead, he would have to offer a ram. He'd have to go through atonement. And there would have been some kind of compensation paid. You, I need to remind you, there would have been leeway with these judges about how to make these determinations. So this is not just the only thing to consider. The, the situation would have been considered. I'm sure if there was something more violent and there would have been a more extreme penalty, if it was these two kids just fell in love and she was promised to somebody else, well, okay, well now my son's not going to marry her, but I've also been raising this woman to be a wife for my son and now they're not going to be married now because she's committed adultery. So this is a loss of time and of finances. And I know we don't think about relationships that way, but that was how it was done in this culture. So the Lord provides an exception here. And I realize a lot of this makes us uncomfortable, but if it does, I'd remind you to go back and listen to the discussions we did in the book of Exodus, where we did a full in-depth survey of how the Bible approaches slavery. Verse 23 through 25. When you come into the land and plant any kind of tree for food, then you shall regard its fruit as forbidden. Three years it shall be forbidden to you. It must not be eaten. And in the fourth year, all its fruit shall be holy, an offering of praise to the Lord. But in the fifth year, you may eat of its fruit to increase its yield for you. I am the Lord your God. So this is about letting the land rest. When you plant a tree, you can't eat the fruit for the first three years. And as you probably know, when you're planting a fruit tree, it's probably not even going to be that good for the first couple years. But then there's a fourth year of waiting. This would have been all of that harvest would have been tithed to the Lord. Then you could eat from it. There's a lot of little agricultural notes in the book of the law about crop rotation and things like that uh, that were really very far ahead of their time and uh, things that our own land could have learned from because we have done several things where we wore out the land with, with cotton and we wore it out with wheat and that caused the dust bowl and things like that and would have behooved us to take a break every once in a while, which is what the Lord had them do. Verses 26 through 28, you shall not eat any flesh with the blood in it you shall not interpret omens or tell fortunes. You shall not round off the hair on your temples or mar the edges of your beard. You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. All right. These verses are about magical or pagan practices, starting with the eating of blood. Now, we've already covered that in detail, but because it's connected with this section here, this is probably more akin to the ritual drinking of blood which is disgusting, but happened in a lot of these dark, magical rituals that they used to go through. They were never to go to fortune tellers, which is something that we also need to remember. The Bible tells us over and over again to stay away from people that are going to try to tell you the future. Why? Because God knows the future, and he is not 
unwilling to reveal it to you. He's told you everything that you need to know and you need to trust that it's in his hands. So I don't care if it's, oh, it's just a party and they had a psychic come in or we were just you know, having fun. Stay away from that stuff. Now, these laws about hair are confusing, where he says not to mar the edges of your beard, not to round off your hair. This is why uh, many Jews will have the long curls that come down from here. They're obeying this law right here. It's also why they let the beards grow. Because it's in this section, it seems to be related to these other laws about witchcraft and about idolatry. It's similar to how they would cut themselves to show mourning. The Lord is going, I don't want you disfiguring yourselves for a pagan god. And that's what these cuts and these tattoos were for. Remember in 1 Kings 18, we're on the top of Mount Carmel, and they're calling out for Baal, and it said they began to lacerate themselves with swords and spears to get the attention of the God. This is what the Lord is telling them not to do. He also says, in mourning for somebody, don't be cutting yourself. Now, let's talk about tattoos for a quick minute here. The purpose of a tattoo at this point in this culture was to invoke the, the power and the blessing of some god or other. That was the reason why you did this. You would do this to, to work spells. You would do this to have such and such god to mark yourself as belonging to him. Other cultures did tattoos that had nothing to do with that. Uh, some of the Polynesian cultures, for example, would have a lot of tattooing that wasn't the same kind of witchcraft that we see here. Now, what about tattoos today? Well, Consider this. Why are you getting a tattoo? If you're doing it to honor a pagan god, please don't. <laughs> all right? Secondarily, I mean, there's all kinds of rules about vanity in here. Are you doing this to get everybody to look at you and stare at you and think you're so great? Well, don't. But I will say this. We are not under the law. This law is never repeated, and the context makes it very clear the purpose of these laws. So I don't see any reason with getting tattoos today, not to get a tattoo today. I think this falls under the Romans chapter 14 uh, matters of opinion and conscience law. If you feel like, I don't think I could do that in good conscience, then don't. And if you feel like you could, then great, but don't go rubbing it in somebody else's face and saying you're a loser and a bigot for not getting this. This is also a generational thing. And I'll tell you, those of you that are older here, I recognize what tattoos used to mean, right? It used to be a very defiant, very rebellious kind of thing. In large measure, they're not that way anymore. And I, I hope that there can be some understanding there between the generations, recognizing that one's conscience is going to be more uh, tender, shall we say, on this issue than others, and that we can be kind to one another. Anyway, let's keep going. Verse 29, Do not profane your daughter by making her a prostitute lest the land fall into prostitution and the land become full of depravity. This is about prostitution. I've heard somebody say, the Bible doesn't say anything about this. Oh, yes, it does. He calls it depravity. And this is something that you're seeing a lot today because now that there are these online platforms where people can, can pay directly to people, there's this been an alarming rise, especially of young women uh, selling pornographic images of themselves online. There is no dignity in sex work whether that's prostitution, whether that's pornography. Haven't we seen this in our own land? Haven't you ever met somebody that's caught up in this? It's not a good thing. There's no nobility to it. Your body is far too valuable to be sold for the titillation of somebody else. Have a little self-respect. It's not a commodity. We've talked about this at length before too. Got to go a little faster. Verse 30. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. We've discussed this before. You can see why in this context related to prostitution and magic and idolatry, the prostitution is probably related to temple prostitution, which was unfortunately very common. And uh, he says, honor my sanctuary. So as in, don't bring all this stuff into my house. Verse 31, do not turn to mediums or necromancers. We would call these psychics today. Do not seek them out. And so make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. So, I just, again, psychics, magicians, voodoo, witch doctors, astrology, tarot cards, spells, potions, any such thing. There's two things the Bible says about that kind of stuff. Number one, it's abundantly foolish. Says, Do you really think that you're going to look at the stars and you're going to know what your future is? The Bible has very little patience with this kind of thing. But it's also demonic. And I, I've known a, a good number of people that have come out of this stuff and have, have been down that dark path before. And they say, don't mess with that. Because when you start calling out to the void for some kind of magical power, 
The devil is willing to deceive you in that moment and trick you and perform all kinds of cool little tricks. Oh, I saw a table float off the floor. All right, my God created the universe and rose again on the third day. Now, magic and fiction is one thing, but in real life, there is only bondage and deception awaiting you. So some Christians prefer just to completely abstain from all of that, even in something like the Chronicles of Narnia or Lord of the Rings that most of us would agree is pretty wholesome. And that's perfectly acceptable. But those of you that are maybe are, have a stronger conscience on that issue, you need to make sure you make a distinction and you make sure that you're not allowing those lines to be blurred. Verse 32, You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man, and you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. This tells us to regard the aged, something we're not very good at, and something those of us who are aging need to stop acting like it's such a bad thing, because you're training our young people to fear growing old. It's not something to be afraid of. It's something to be celebrating. It's something to honor and regard. I remember if, you, if you've ever read, um, I want to say it was The Hiding Place. I think it was uh, Corey Tenboom's book about the Holocaust, where she talks about this young man they brought in to work in their shop who was a Nazi, they kind of all were at that point, and now he had no respect for anybody who came in who was old. And that was one of the first signs they noticed that this movement isn't what we thought it was. Because they were teaching these people, old men who have no social utility need to be done away with. And that was a mark. I'm not saying if you have a problem with old people, you're a Nazi. I'm just saying it's a wicked thing and wicked people get into it. All right? Verse 33 through 34. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns you with you as the native among you. Underline that verse. And you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Honoring the stranger who sojourns. In our case, a foreigner, regardless of their legal status and regardless of your political feelings. You can have all kinds of political opinions about what ought to be done to secure the border and all the rest of that. That needs to be kept distinct and separate from the person that is standing right in front of you. And I'm very serious about this. To pay somebody less than they deserve because you know they can't legally get more is a sin. To give them fewer options is a sin. That's forgetting your own grace in Christ Jesus. You're a sojourner in this world. Are you not? So listen, we've got another election coming up. Can we promise not to shame ourselves in the way that we speak about foreigners this coming election cycle? Verse 35. You shall do no wrong in judgment, in measures of length or weight or quantity. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah, and a just hin. We might say something like a just gallon and a just bushel. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and you shall observe all my statutes and all my rules and do them. I am the Lord. It's about standard weights and measures. It's like you ought to have a standard weight and a standard measure, not one for the smart guy and one for the sucker, where you can get a little more money out of him. Don't water down the gasoline. Don't run back the odometer. Don't lie about quantities. I had a guy working at my old job, and he said, you got to lie to do this job. I said, I'm not going to lie. Well, you got to lie. You won't make any money. So, well, I'm going to see how much money I can make without lying. He then asked I found out later, my boss, do you think a person can be too religious? Because Tyler's going to mess it all up for us by being so honest. You're not just doing it for people, you're doing it for your God. Verse 37, you shall observe all my statutes and all my rules and do them. Again, I am the Lord. These things have defined for us what holiness and love looks like. And I realize there, you could dive into any one of these a whole lot deeper. But for time's sake, we're just going to continue on in verse, to chapter 20 now. Chapter 20 is going to focus much more on the punishments for these things. And so this will go much faster than chapter 19. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Say to the people of Israel, Any one of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel, who gives any of his children to Molech, shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. Notice that the people participated in the execution of somebody so that they themselves had to feel the sting of it. I myself will set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people because he has given one of his children to Molech to make my sanctuary unclean and to profane my holy name. And if the people of the land do at all, close their eyes to that man when he gives one of his children to Molech and do not put him to death, 
Then I will set my face against that man and against his clan and will cut them off from among, from among their people, him and all who follow him in whoring after Molech. This chapter is going to repeat a lot of the instructions we've already read and is going to assign penalties to them. This is especially focusing on the kind of penalties that deserve the death penalty. The first time we see that is in Genesis 9, verse 6, where God told Noah, if a man sheds the blood of a man, by man shall his blood be shed. So the Bible permits and in some cases encourages the death penalty. And I know there's a whole lot of debate about that among Christians, and I think that's fine. This is not, do we have to do this? This is what God said in Romans 13, that the state has been given the sword in order to punish wickedness. Now, we are not what is called a theonomist. We are not somebody who believes that we need to take this Old Testament law and apply it to our social government. But it does tell us that the Lord sees certain things as so wicked that they deserve to be punished with death. So that's just important to remember. We can have the debate about whether or not it applies to a certain situation or if we're going to do it in our state or country. But as far as the Lord is concerned, it's kind of a settled issue. Now, the first thing he says is anybody who sacrifices their child to Molech shall die. We discussed this last time. People would take their unwanted children and offer them on a burning altar to the god Molech. And that god opposes them, and did you see this? Also opposes people who look the other way when this is done. He says, if you know this is going on in your clan and you don't do anything about it, then you are also guilty. I expect you to self-govern, God is saying. As we talked about last time, Solomon introduced this practice. Manasseh, the king, did it himself. And that was kind of a turning point for the land of Israel. God goes, all right, we're not doing this. Judgment is coming and there's nothing any of you can do about it. When Manasseh executed a son who was of the line of the coming Messiah. Jeremiah 32, God says that that thing that they were doing, he says, I did not command it, nor did it enter into my mind that you would do this abomination. God said, I didn't even think of that you would do this. I can't believe that you're doing this. This is unreal. Now, we ourselves, we don't ceremonialize it, but you know, th this is where we, we come up against the abortion conversation. Now, we, of course, just struck down federal protection for abortion, but as I'm sure you've all heard, 86% will continue because it's gone to the states, and the states are going to vote yes or no. So... Most of the states that were opposed to this, I mean, the people are opposed, so it wasn't really happening, but 86% will continue. Now, th don't, don't get all depressed. This was a great victory that we ought to celebrate. And we never want to soften our views on this for reputation's sake. As the Lord says, you've got to call this out. You can't just let this happen. You've got to say this. And I hope the day will come where we all look at this as an abomination and look back and say, what were we thinking I think it should be illegal. I think there should be stiff penalties for it. But for right now, what we need to be working to do is to win the hearts of people and to awaken their consciences and to help the people that are being driven to do this because of their circumstances. We've got to do the hard work, as the church always has. You know, in Rome, they used to have boxes where you could deposit your unwanted babies and then they would be thrown out to the city dump in the morning. You know what the church started doing? Started going to those boxes and taking all the babies home and raising them. Isn't that pretty cool? That's where that whole thing of dropping off your baby at the orphanage came from, from like all those superhero movies. Because that's what people would do. They knew the Christians would take your baby. So they'd show up and drop off their baby and walk away. That's where the first orphanages came from. The church has been doing this since the beginning because we value this. May the Lord grant us more victories in this area. And I pray that the Lord will especially bless those states abundantly and clearly who have chosen to honor his will on this issue. Verses 6 and 7, if a person turns to mediums or necromancers, whoring after them, God always compares idolatry and paganism to prostitution, whoring after them, I will set my face against that person and will cut him off from among his people. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. So he promises to personally oppose those who go after magicians and spiritists. Is that something you really want? You want God to oppose you personally? And that's the opposite of holiness, to engage in witchcraft and demonism. He says you defile yourself. And you know I'm seeing more of this? I'm not going to say it's prominent, but it's like I'm hearing more about this. That, you know, I was just in, you know, St. Clair on Monday, and we were talking, and the guy just kind of casually mentioned 
The Odinists. What's an Odinist? Somebody who worships the ancient Norse god Odin. It's a white supremacist thing that they do in the prison. Forget Christianity. We're going all the way back to our roots, and we're worshiping Odin. We're worshiping Thor. And some of you have told me, you know people like this. And that's becoming a more, unfortunately, prevalent thing. People are claiming the name heathen with pride. And, I mean, it's not just on that side. You see that many people on the left side that are rejecting Christianity for their own reasons, they're also turning to things like seances and witches. And it's kind of like a, you know, stick it to the man kind of thing. Be a witch, be a demon worshiper. And we've got to watch out for that. It doesn't matter how popular it gets. It's not okay. It's not a game. Eight and nine, keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. For anyone who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or his mother. His blood is upon him. Cursing parents was a capital crime too. I can't help but wonder if this was primarily used as a teaching tool among the children of Israel. If you had a, imagine you had a, a rebellious 11-year-old who one day cursed mom and dad. So what do mom and dad do? They go to the village elders. Now, there's no intention of actually putting this kid to death. But what you do, you bring him up and you put him on trial. And you let him know how serious this actually is. We can legally stone you for this. Now you say, that's a little harsh, isn't it? Well, first of all, we need to remember that we are incredibly lax with the way we raise our children. So we should not be the ones to be criticizing somebody else. The parents are to represent God, remember? To defy them is to defy God. Colossians 3.20 says, Parents or children, obey your parents in everything, for this is right in the Lord. And the church needs to always be the champion of family, to honor the roles of father and mother, grandfather, grandmother, to honor the role of son and daughter. A family is not just a set of individuals. We're a unit. We're together. It's not just, I'm trying to get my life going and you guys are the prologue of my story. No way. We're together. We take care of each other. We love one another. Moving on to verse 10, and we're going to go for a long section here. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. It should be noted in Babylonian culture, only the woman would be put to death for that. Very unfair. If a man lies with his father's wife, he has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. If a man lies with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall surely be put to death. They have committed perversion. Their blood is upon them. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, homosexuality, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. If a man takes a woman and her mother also, it is depravity. He and they shall be burned with fire, that there may be no depravity among you. If a man lies with an animal, bestiality, he shall surely be put to death, and you shall kill the animal. If a woman approaches any animal and lies with it, you shall kill the woman and the animal. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. That phrase, their blood is upon them, is they did this. It's their fault. It's not happening to them. They brought this on themselves. If a man takes his sister, a daughter of his father or a daughter of his mother, and sees her nakedness and she sees his nakedness, it is a disgrace, and they shall be cut off in the sight of the children of their people. He has uncovered his sister's nakedness, and he shall bear his iniquity. If a man lies with a woman during her menstrual period and uncovers her nakedness, he has made naked her fountain, and she has uncovered the fountain of her blood. Both of them shall be cut off from among their people. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister or your father's sister, for that is to make naked one's relative. They shall bear their iniquity. If a man lies with his uncle's wife, he has uncovered his uncle's nakedness. They shall bear their sin. They shall die childless. If a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness. They shall be childless. So we went through this last time. He repeats the laws about sexual immorality, and he assigns the death penalty to them all. Adultery, incest, homosexuality, bestiality. Sex is a serious thing, everybody. It's a holy thing. Hebrews 13.4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. I'll just say our culture is categorically wrong on sex, so don't get your ideas about sex from them. You shall therefore, verse 22, keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them, that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. And you shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I am driving out before you, for they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. 
But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean. He's wrapping up this main section here. And the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or by anything with which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy and have separated you from among the peoples that you should be mine. So this is wrapping up this whole section from 17 through 20. He reminds them, do the rules that I've given you because I'm leading you into the promised land, but you must be different than them. God doesn't just get rid of one people for their sin and then promise to never judge Israel's sin. He says, no, 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 you're going to get the same thing they got if you do the same things they did. And he commands them to separate. Remember, that's tied to holiness. Learn what is right and wrong and don't blend the two. We're not looking to blend into the world but to stand out in our service and our holiness to the Lord. And you've got to have a heavenly perspective to make that work. And I hope we all learned a heavenly perspective when we were at the foot of the cross and we said, Lord, you've got to save me. In the last verse, verse 27, a man or woman who is a medium or a necromancer shall surely be put to death. They shall be stoned with stones. Their blood shall be upon them. So this last verse here mandates death for the witch as well as the one who solicited witchcraft. C.S. Lewis very famously said, we don't execute witches anymore, not because we don't believe in the death penalty, but because we don't believe in witches. That's a very interesting thing, I think. Like we think, oh, it's so wrong that they used to kill witches. Why? Well, we all know there's no such thing as a witch. Well, the Bible takes that kind of thing very seriously. So that maybe needs some evaluation of our own worldview, something to think about. I also think by verse 27 added kind of on the end of the conclusion there, you can kind of see the, the assembly process of these laws. And it reminds us that there was a human element in these things being put together, right? It was structured very neatly and very cleanly. And it seems that as this was done, that uh, some parts were added. Moses would add them on later before he came to the final form. I like seeing things like that because it reminds me that there was a process and that the Lord has preserved it for us. So we finish up the holiness code. We had the cleanness mandates in the first part, moral mandates in the second. Because remember, Leviticus is all about who can dwell with God in our midst. And the answer is holy, consecrated people. Holiness means being separate in our devotion to the Lord, making a distinction between ourselves and the world. And second, it's about love, showing God's love to everyone as defined by God as our foundation for ethics and morality. As New Testament Christians, we have greater liberty, but we also have greater responsibility. So let's live these things out well.